Chris Coulter is CEO of GlobeScan, an insights and advisory consultancy helping companies, NGOs, and governmental organizations know their world and create strategies that lead to a sustainable and equitable future. He is co-author of All In, The Future of Business Leadership, and The Sustainable Business Handbook. He is chair of Canadian Business for Social Responsibility, a member of B-Lab's Multinational Standards Advisory Council, and serves on Walgreens Corporate Responsibility Advisory Board. Chris also co-hosts All In, the Sustainable Business Podcast. Welcome to a special limited series on business and society with Bruce Piasecki. Today, we're talking with Chris Coulter, CEO of Globescan. Chris and Bruce, you've both been committed to sharing sustainable solutions and helping corporations transition and overcome global challenges in an ever-changing landscape. Chris, I got to know a bit more of your work through Bruce and AHC Group's Corporate Affiliates Workshop. And as you know, climate change will only be mitigated if humanity intervenes and takes responsibility for the future of the planet that requires the private sector really coming on board and taking actionable steps. At the same time, you know, I understand public perception is important to any company and each year they're spending large amounts of money to make sure that the public is abundantly aware of all the work that they're doing or going to do to help with the transition to clean energy and net zero. And that's where what both of you do comes into play. So Chris, can you tell us a little bit about the years you spent at Globescan and the offices you work from? Oh, many years, Bruce, toiling away. I think 23 years now at Globescan. We're a small but mighty boutique firm. We're quite distributed. We're across eight offices. So in Toronto, San Francisco, Sao Paulo in the Americas, London, Paris in Europe, Mumbai in India, Hong Kong, and uh, Cape Town in South Africa. So there's a, an intentionality around being in the North and the South and the East and the West to understand what's really transpiring. Our purpose is to co-create a sustainable and equi equitable world in the future. And so that means that we need to be in all places because a lot of the solutions and a lot of the action is happening outside of North America and Europe in the future, right? That's the trajectory and that's the weight of humanity. So we're excited about that. I think Mia, when you began with the, you know, the existential threat of climate change and the role of business in it, this is absolutely fundamental. We all realize that, that most of the impacts and carbon footprints, as well as other sort of footprints. 70 to 75% are all run through the private sector, which means that it is, the bad news is that it's the private sector that has to move. The good news is that the private sector has demonstrated very effectively that they can move and move dramatically. And you can see recently just the remarkable explosion around net zero commitments, which transpired mostly in the lead up to COP26. But I think five years ago, if any of us thought working in sustainability, that we would have the thousands of companies that are not only committed to net zero strategies and pathways, but are also reporting transparently through things like CDP, we would have been, you know, really pleasantly surprised. And so we're there. I think that's some of the good news. The challenge is that we still have a relatively small segment of what's the estimated 85,000 multinational companies on the planet that are really taking this in a embracing it both as a part of their core business activities and have the sophistication and expertise internally to deliver on it. So we're still looking at an iceberg with at the top, a bunch of maybe a couple of hundred big, large global companies that are doing this at the scale that we need, and we still haven't gotten below, but we do have a bunch of disclosure laws that are going to drive some of that more, more fully, both in the U S and in Canada, and also with the frag in Europe and other, other jurisdictions across the world. So that's good. We do have 
growing pressure externally from stakeholders, from Gen Z as a very important employee base audience and future talent that's going to push companies dramatically. We're seeing emerging consumer trends that suggest this is more important to people. We have investors and things like GFANS with $130 trillion potentially to be applied to decarbonization strategies 2050. So all of these things are very robust and exciting. And yet, as we've seen even in the last two weeks or three weeks, the extraordinary transformation of the climate and the modeling that's always been projected is probably worse than people thought. And so we're in a real pickle and a fight for survival of the planet and the race against the unrelenting feedback mechanisms that we have from climate change. And Chris, one of the things that I wanted to bridge between your achievements these 23 years, your messages are both urgent, but not angry. They're inclusive and solution-oriented, not just saying about the bad news. And that's even clearer in the tone of what you just said so far. So I view your book all in as a masterwork on various social movements and that you converged an awareness of energy, environment, economics, youth. And you saw that in an interesting way in your book, All In, with your two co-authors. If we could start this discussion on how you studied to take that inclusive view and that tone of operating. Well, thanks for the kind words on, on All In. And, and David Grayson and Mark Lee are my co-authors. So they're, they're, we've got a great triumvirate <laughs> working on this stuff with different skills. I think you're right on the inclusivity is really a fundamental point. I mean, we're always in a glass half full, half empty perspective. I think I've been in sustainable development for a couple of decades now, and I've been mentored by people like you, Bruce, and others who've been doing it for up to 40 years. And one of those lessons of endurance is that we need to maintain a sense of optimism and empowering the system to respond to the crisis, you know, because the there's no other option really on, on one level. I think that there is a reality of the ebb and flow in people working in sustainability, feeling different levels of doom and gloom versus optimism. And I think that's a normal, realistic thing. And there's a lot of burnout that's transpired in, in over the decades for people who've dedicated their lives to things and see the urgency and the emergency of what's transpiring. But we also know that I think the, those of us who've been doing this for a while, the last three years, maybe three and a half years have been truly transformative from sustainability being something that's quite ghettoized and peripheral in lots of conversations to something that's been much more legitimized and mainstreamed for lots of different reasons and most of them good. So this is a moment where we've seen those of us are working out that things can change very dramatically and that should fuel our optimism for going forward. And so the inclusiveness and trying to understand and engage different segments of that total ecosystem that's required to drive change from investors to business, to consumers, to governments, to civil society, all need to work. And for the first time we are seeing that those different gears as in a watch moving in the same direction, not at the same pace, not the same force all the time. But for the first time, they're in the same direction. So I think we're on the cusp of a network effect that will accelerate the transition to sustainability because it is the only choice we have. And I think the survivability instincts that are, are kind of important to our species, the signals are beginning to feedback, you know, and on our planet as one of the biggest stakeholders in that ecosystem is really 
sounding loud and clear of what the stakes are. And uh, if we can respond well enough without getting too pessimistic and losing people and being inclusive, that's the next challenge we have. I love the metaphor, Chris, of the watch where these six or seven different elements of stakeholder capitalism are all now moving, as you say, at a different pace, but they're all moving with some increased urgency and also the great optimism of a network effect. I am still interested in where you came from so that people think of their own career trajectory to become advocates for global solutions. Like anything, I think that's interesting in life. There's a bit of randomness to it. So my intention was to become a doctor because I grew up, my parents were quite civic minded and old hippies who wanted to change the world in the sixties. And so those values were instilled. I thought medicine would be a great place. I ended up shifting to international development and wanting to focus on that part of what was transpiring in the world. I ended up working for the Canadian government in CEDA, which is the, you know, the former USAID equivalent in Ottawa. And then I saw a poster to volunteer in Ukraine and my mother's side of the family is Ukrainian. So I thought that what a great thing to do. So I ended up being the guy who could speak English and write proposals for NATO. Ironically, wow. in 1996 for this really interesting organic organization called Democratic Initiatives Foundation, which continues to exist, but this fantastic founder, Ikhil Kucherev, who's passed away, sadly, uh, he was a democratic reformer. Ukraine became independent in 91. He wanted to bring tools from the West that were important to develop civil society, which included public opinion polling. So he got some old Soviet trained sociologists to do some polling and wanted to do media training to try and develop civil society. So I was the guy to be help sort of think of that from an engagement with the British council and USAID and NATO and things like that. So then I came back to Toronto and stumbled upon this organization that was doing global polling on the environment. And our founder, Doug Miller did the first very big global public opinion poll on the environment called the international environmental monitor in 1997. And that's how I got sucked into this world of trying to, you know, use evidence to better understand the social transformations that are required. That's very useful for students to try and imagine their own career trajectory. It seems almost random, but now in retrospect, you see how your initial passion led to, you know, going from Canada into something that utilized the fact that you had dual languages and you had some Ukrainian culture in you and that. That opened another door and then that opened this door that you then rose to CEO. I think it's very important for people to understand the personality that led to the leader. So your books and your talks and the client reports all have this urgency in them. And I see in them a historic request for action. Now you're considered a leader on sustainability, but I also see you as having learned some things from social movements. Do you think there are social movements that you want to report out that helped you see sustainability in its new context so that when you wrote a book like Law It or now your new handbook on sustainability, it's got a big lens. It seems like it's not just coming from the environmental movement. For sure it's not. And I think the dynamics of societal change slash transformation are always around us and we don't know how they pop it. And there's all these little streams that are flowing in. And sometimes they flow to build this river that does move big rocks along. Um, and sometimes they maintain as tributaries that kind of go underground and they pop up again. But I, 
I do think that there's a centrality to what we've seen over time and probably a broader continuum of these movements that go from the traditional environmental movement, which is, I think, you know, probably we would say is five decades old. It's matured, it's sophisticated, it's very scientifically driven historically. You can think of iconic ones like WWF and WRI leading the charge to some degree, as well as activist organizations like Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth, which are, play a role in that, in that. And then I think you have more spontaneous, interesting ones that are, are portending where the future is going, like Occupy movement and the more decentralized approaches that combine both the social and environmental, like Extinction Rebellion, which I think is a really interesting example of how the activist agenda can tap in, which has influence on things like corporate employees and going back to the role of business. I think right. one of the biggest, biggest levers going forward is how do employees push their companies, whether they want to or not, to address or embrace some of the big challenges in the world. And I think that, um, you know, talking with Paul Pullman a couple of months ago, he saw this as being one of the important elements for guiding and keeping CEOs focused on the sustainability agenda was having employees speak very clearly to the executives of what they stood for, what matters to them. And you can see in lots of examples, it's really hard for a CEO not to, if even a, a portion of their workforce is disgruntled and doesn't believe in the company anymore, that's it, right? The social contract's gone and you've lost them. It's like a coach who gets, who loses the dressing room. They've got to get fired so that long. I think the metaphor of different tributaries leading to a river that can move rocks is another grounds for hope. Ralph Roldo Emerson wrote an essay on social reformers that influenced Henry David Thoreau's famous essay on civil disobedience, which then helped Gandhi fight for freedom of his people in India and then Pakistan, and then helped Martin Luther King kind of start the racial equity issue. You see that any of your work is fed from those larger social movements, or do you think it comes out in the public opinion polls that you're taking? I do think that sustainable development it is in the spirit of those broader movements. And I think if I trace sustainable development, the birth of the term to 1987 and Madame Brundtland's Our Common Future is a fundamental document describing, you know, the future generation's needs being equal to our current needs and the planetary boundaries and the integration of the social side of things being important. I think it does fit with that. And it, I think it, in some ways it was a an attempt to be a unifying theory. And we still see that now, right? We see a three-legged stool of sustainability of environment, social and economics vacillating back and forth. And, you know, the, on the ESG vocabulary, the importance of S and the social has risen lately and it's up and down. And I think the broader concept in 87 was to bring all this stuff together, which is a really great anecdote of how this uh, wonderful man. I don't know if he's still with us, but his name was Nitin Desai, and he was an undersecretary general in the UN. And Madame Brundtland, apparently in 85, was having trouble getting the conversation happening. And you still have this Northern Hemisphere stakeholders who were quite environmentally focused and stakeholders from the Global South that were very development focused. And they couldn't agree on the priorities of how do we bring our common future together. And she asked Nitin, who's Indian, but working in the UN in Geneva to come in and talk. 
And he looked at this and said, well, let's invent a term called sustainable development, which brings both of these together. And I think it sort of was a, a fiction or a, a convention to try and do it, but still we've been struggling with the integration of these things on an ongoing basis. And I think that that is sort of the culmination to agree of these movements you're talking about, Bruce, that were very lofty and looking at human dignity, but we know post some of those writings, Thoreau obviously understood as well, that the natural planetary boundaries aren't limitless and we need to deal with that in order to deal with the social and the social is need to be dealt with now to deal with the environmental, given the political polarization and challenges that we've seen most recently. The things that you've just said about the integration of two different worlds, the North and the South or development and sustainability is critical because in my own work for 30 years, I thought I was working on business reform. And now I know I'm working on the interface of business and society. Right. For the longest time, I thought I was working on how do you make wealth creation have a social conscience. Now I realize I'm doing work on the osmotic relationship between wealth and the commonwealth. So I think in your work, a lot of your reports show that integration happening in the last 10 years. And just to get a bit of granularity and specifics on the report, so we understand, I know you went into the history, it's actually one of the very earliest sustainability reports. Just for those who aren't familiar and what your findings are and how it creates accountability within companies. I mean, there's two things that I think we've done over a couple of decades that are worth mentioning. One is a global public opinion study we've been doing since 97 to understand people's concerns and perspectives on a whole range of sustainable development issues. And they have ebbed and flowed over time. But the last little bit, there's been a spike and a an alignment with concern levels, particularly around climate, but also poverty across the world. So this rise of these issues in people's minds, despite COVID, despite some um, economic pressures and challenges, there, there's been a uniqueness of galvanization and growing anxiety across the world and across generations and all the rest of it. So that's exciting and important. And that's part of the, like those, the the bedrock of where these social movements come from is the broader background music of what people get excited about. The, the other thing that, and a lot of our work now on public or consumers is really focusing how do people respond to that agenda and what does it mean in their daily lives as consumers, as employees, as citizens? So how does that activate more sustainable living? And I think that last mile of the sustainable development journey is about trying to get eight people to live differently and live better. And if we can, we haven't spent a lot of time on the demand side and it's very difficult. It's social engineering at scale, which is impossible at most, but yet it's one of those things that we've got to try and get much better at more quickly. The other thematic that we've been tracking is, is more of a stakeholder perspective. So experts in the field, and we've been tracking their views since the mid nineties collectively to try and orient the global agenda. And this is where the urgency comes in, Bruce, that you're referencing, where in that time we are at the peak now of highest levels of urgency on the agenda, according to these experts. So people, they are freaked out who are, people are close to it. The, you know, the lights are flashing quite red. And, um, on that, we also see an evolution of corporate leadership as a response to that agenda, which we've been tracking quite closely and which was the cornerstone of the book all in, um, to see how do different companies show up and what are the attributes of leadership that meet the moment, whichever era of leadership we're in.
you already referred to certain pockets of social movements like Extinction Rebellion or the Occupy Movement from New York. Can you tell us what's the difference between a global view that you're describing for great corporations that need a global view versus a Canadian or a North American perspective? What do you think are the essential differences? Because I've always felt that in fighting about climate change in the Al Gore years when I was in the White House, it was limited to a North American phenomenon and we really didn't get credit in Brazil. But we didn't get credit in Australia, even though they were key partners, of course. So just any thoughts about how this audience needs to know that, that you're discovering a global trend rather than something that's happening in Canada or the U.S.? Yeah, I think that it is challenging because there is a localization and a reprioritization of some of these issues and actually how we think about it in different parts of the world. And, you know, we're learning, but my colleagues and the clients we work with on the ground in those different locations are teaching us the, the differences, right? And, and sometimes they're quite subtle and sometimes they're quite significant and also in some cases pretty obvious, right? So poverty issues are more important in South Africa, for example, than they are in the U.S. Okay, but in, or they're different in context in many ways. And when you have unemployment rates of 30% in South Africa, that has a different conversation when it comes to the net zero pathways and the priorities, things like that. We do definitely see that the social agenda is more a priority in the global South, particularly in Latin America and Africa, and that any conversation you have about climate change, especially in parts of Africa, needs to have a just transition component to it, by which I mean we need to understand the historical context of where emissions have come from, the level of ongoing poverty that exists in some of those parts of the world, and that priority has to be there. As a WWF friend of mine says that if you have a choice between a child and a tree, the tree loses every single time, no matter where you are. And therefore the priority of treating people with dignity and giving them an opportunity will outweigh the environmental challenges that we have. So we need to speak about climate change, for example, in South Africa, where there's lots of coal being used, yet high levels of unemployment, ongoing challenges, that that transition needs to be slower naturally than it is in Germany. And Sometimes we lose sight of that in the urgency of this, but we need to put that in context and have any chance of engaging or talking or bringing people with us in business in South Africa or even in Brazil, we need to keep that, that sort of in mind. So there are flavors that are quite different. I think Asia is still, I mean, Asia is a massive region of the world, obviously. I think that we are in danger not having a true enough global conversation there because of the challenge that we're challenges we're seeing geopolitically with China. And right. there is no sustainability solution without China. There's lots of sustainability opportunities and mindsets that are unique and contributory from China that we need to tap into. And I think the part of the, there's a, a thing that's happening in Asia that's very ESG oriented, much more than sustainability, which in some ways excites and worries me. You know, it's interesting how China moves. They move very quickly, as you know. They appointed over a thousand environmental judges in a year. I mean, to see that kind of movement, you know, and also created a law that allows environmental groups and prosecutors to bring environmental lawsuits to sue the government and businesses without the obligation of, you know, win or lose, covering the opposing side's legal expenses. Just the rapidity of the movement. I don't think it's just for appearances. It's quite, quite a number of judges. And I think that we have to be more resolute in our respective countries. Well said. And I think that I would like to say of the three of us, I have the least global view 
And it's really fascinating to be able to talk with people like you, me and Chris, because you do have information coming in from across the globe. Can I just add one more point, Bruce, on that? Because I think the other piece of the puzzle that's interesting is from a societal and sort of public opinion research showing that the perceived impact, where, where people are actually feeling impacts from climate change, which has always been the challenge, right? The, the future discounting of the concern and the issue, it's always down the road. Now we're seeing people experiencing impacts and there's been a growth. Now 36% of the global population said I've been personally greatly impacted by climate change, up five points from a year ago. So it's growing and the distribution of those impacts are unequal as well. And they tend to be mostly in developing countries where the impacts are felt the greatest. So we do have this interesting thing where in the Netherlands, the impacts are felt the lowest, yet concerns are highest and support for climate things are happening. And in other parts of the world, like Argentina or Mexico, where you have very high levels of personal impact and the concern levels sometimes are middling. So we're in a very strange time of unequal distribution, both of impact and also potential solutions at hand. But that'll also, I think, lead to more interesting conversations going forward. What can you recommend as new tools besides a global carbon tax? I do think that corporations, which are 75% of the answer, will answer better and faster with a tax on carbon. But besides that issue, what are some of the other things that you'd recommend we think about, about this existential threat of climate change? If you have any thoughts about the role of competition and frugality or any thoughts about how to run a firm more efficiently, I think that might be helpful. You've written lots and well on this idea of the efficiency and how we actually make our institutions work more effectively and particularly in business. I don't have anything to add from what you've already written. I do think that the two gorillas we are dealing with when it comes to sustainable development are climate change and inequality. Yes. Inequality for its many manifestations. A carbon tax and carbon regulations in whatever guise is required. And I think it's being baked in increasingly and we're moving towards those elements, which is great. On the inequality side, I think that it feels like a living wage is the most important policy change that can be made. And some companies have done that and I think have done it across jurisdictions and throughout their value chain, which is important because again, value chains are, are, we know that one company can have a hundred thousand in Volkswagen's case, 650,000 employees, so big, but yet their supply chains magnify that to exponential levels of tens of millions of people who are directly or indirectly affected. If we can find ways for even that top hundred set of companies to implement living wage policies, we raise a whole bunch of boats extraordinarily quickly. And that addresses the deeper inequality that comes from all kinds of different perspectives, from technological dislocation to geopolitics to, you know, all the different elements that are, are inherent in poverty. So it feels like that, and that does seem to have some movements of how do we define what a living wage looks like and how do we actually implement it in tertiary parts of our supply chain, not just, you know, in, in our corporate walls. One of the things my firm has been tracking with a feeling of new grounds for hope is that the normal voices of financial literacy, like the financial times of London or the wall street journal or Bloomberg or mm -hmm. things like that, they're taking on the themes that your firm has discovered as of new urgency and new right. interest. So that it used to be as if financial justification or return on something 
was the only language of finance. These elements of society and good governance are now becoming central. So I want to ask again a, a question about boldness. Mm. It seems to me that part of what I feel when I hear you speak to our corporations is both urgency and boldness. And so I would like for you to reflect on where you derive that power of boldness, because if I think back on the last 30 years, I was perhaps not bold enough. I was willing to temper my evidence and my framing for the sake of adoption. And it seems like Lopescan is very effective in communicating to a Unilever or a Toyota or a mining company. So can you reflect a little bit about the tone of boldness in your findings? Does it get there in the way you frame the evidence or in some other way? That's a great question. And I think my style is very much yours too, Bruce, and the focus is on ad adoption rather than, I think that's just a, pragma a pragmatism that we probably share okay. in some ways. But I do think the boldness comes, I mean, we're, we're a small little catalytic organization, you know, doing some work and supporting, but the boldness comes from big organizations changing what they do, which has ripple effects. And, that, and that's exciting. I think the small contribution we make to this is to honestly and objectively bring the voice of multi-stakeholders for organizations to help them understand, you know, concerns, expectations, opportunities and threats in many ways to, to bring that in a way that is that the data speaks for itself. And so data-driven as well as comprehensive, I think leads to a place where people, you know, we know in these, in these big global companies, their universe is unto themselves. It's easy to be completely preoccupied with everything that's happening. So to bring the outside world in is a real gift for them to see, ah, you know, raising your head from your desk to see this is what's coming, this is what's transpiring. And inevitably the wisdom of the crowd, whoever those stakeholders are, is powerful and it does, it can be quite catalytic and moving the boldness. What I, I referenced before ESG versus sustainability, and I don't want to get into semantics because I think that's not necessarily that useful, but there is a mindset that ES, around ESG, which can be more compliance oriented um, because it's investor and financially led typically. And in my mind, that's wonderful because it raises the floor, right? All of a sudden we have, you know, tens of thousands of more companies now beginning to pay attention to these material impacts, getting better at it and having to report on it because their investors and regulators are demanding it. Fantastic. What we can't have is that zapping the ceiling conversation. I think sustainability, historically, the leaders in sustainability have been able to do the bold moves um, at the right time to move the entire ceiling up higher. So we need both the ceiling to grow and the floor to grow. So we keep with a 10 foot room, but it goes to the, from floor three to floor 50. And I think t we need to find a way collectively to get that conjunction working. So I think the creativity, the innovation of true, bold sustainability is sorely needed. And I worry the pandemic has zapped some of that because I think that kind of stuff Yes. It happens in person, right? We need the physicality of like brainstorming and thinking and being pushed and yes. building courage from each other and where we could be very transactional on Zoom, but it's hard to have that leap of faith and that risk that's required for that boldness. That is one of the losses of the last two years. Well, yes. And I would like to know, because you have that glimpse behind the scenes of the governance. I've been excited for the, I think the first time in, <laughs> in recent years, we've had an interview with 
Bertrand Picard, who, as you know, was the first who did the round the world solar powered flight. And he has the Solar Impulse Foundation with over 1,400 profitable solutions. It was the first time I saw really just such a collection of every sector of society, profitable solutions. And yet he shared that even that was not enough because he felt like they would be adopted. They've been independently assessed. And I'd like to know a little bit about some of this, you know, behind the scenes that you could help us understand a bit of the governance and some of the corporations that you work with. But no, it's not enough. They've been independently assessed. They've worked in small scale rollouts, but they could be implemented more widely. And now he's just brought through with the Solar Impulse Foundation. 50 proposed changes to the laws, to the Assemblée Nationale, if you've been following that. And it's the first time I really felt excited. It's like it, mm-hmm. that I could see it hand in hand with the laws and, and hopefully they'll vote through, make some of those changes. But I hadn't seen a lot of that energy. It was always like a lot of talk. I have to say, you must see it as well. Well, I think it's a great example, Mia, that where historically there has maybe there's been a startup or an innovation, but yet it didn't have the combination of the scale or the timing or the financial backing or the regulatory regime change that's required to make it pop. And I think that's, I think what we're collectively getting better at is saying that it's not one of these things, it's all of them at the same time in the same way, which is the slowness of of the systems change that we're after. But yeah, these green shoots are are really exciting. We need to uh, identify them to move. I think another example of the transition that we're seeing is, you know, this, what's funny how it, it's such an obvious thing that nature should be core to sustainability, yet we really haven't looked at the nature agenda as a key element of how companies in particular should be looking at their impacts and the ways to rejuvenate in the natural systems. And yet now we're at a cusp of having not only, you know, TCFD on the climate side of disclosure, there's a TNFD corollary looking for investors, looking for data on how companies are approaching nature, but the power of it, of looking full system, finally, of how do we harness and engage and replenish nature as, as, as corporate entities. Wow. That that's a, that's also a mindset transition that requires regulatory shifts and this 30 by 30 example that's being piloted in California, where 30% of land is preserved for nature by 2030, huge impacts. And it doesn't get to E.O. Wilson's hope that half of all land on the planet is preserved for nature and the other half is for humans, but it's a hell of a start. And if in a place like California, hugely populated, you know, lots of dynamism, lots of industry, if we can get 30% of that state um, protected uh, by 2030. That's, that's a gift for the world to replicate. Biden is saying they want to take that California example of 30% and federalize it. So right now, I think it's useful to know, you know, as a person who's been in the federal government before, almost 11% of America is already preserved for the future through our national park system, through all of our zoning, through the wealth of individuals who grant climate reserves or forestry reserves for tax purposes. So. The ambition is to accelerate it from 11 to 30 federally across the next 10 years. I've recently begun doing some climate work in Australia and will be there in September and October. And I was shocked to find one of the major financial persons financing my trip there said, and we need to remember that everything has changed in our politics. We had seven years of resistance against climate action. Now we have a political situation where we know it has to happen. And let me remind you, I didn't ask this. 52% of our continent 
is in the hands of Aboriginal people who are concerned about sustainability. They've been there for a long time and we just need to learn what they know. And to me, it was an incredible thing to hear a financial wizard who has 70,000 people behind it, right? To say this about Aboriginal people in Australia. So I do believe that there's something going on in that land preservation movement that is totally connected to climate solutions that, that I never thought about until the last three to five years, Chris. So I think it's exciting when you just brought up. And in a global lens too, I think this is one of the secret weapons we collectively have is indigenous knowledge. And we, 80% of high biodiversity, rich, and also risky territory across the planet is also stewarded by indigenous people. So that's a great mix because- Could you say that again, 80% of- 80% of biodiversity um, that's at risk and really highly valuable is also stewarded by mostly indigenous people. The challenge is that those indigenous people are under threat and the lack of property rights and support and human rights issues. So, we, you know, we have this opportunity where it's a nice match. If we could actually just let them do what they've been doing for millennia, we might be in good shape. The percentage of their population to think about how much they steward, is it around 5% of our population is indigenous? So to think about that, it makes it even more impressive. That relates, Chris, to something that me and I are talking about. My little foundation, the Creative Force Foundation is giving an award this September to Dr. Jessica Hernandez, who is a indigenous scientist in Seattle, and she's funded by the National Science Foundation and is doing work exactly in what you said. So for those that wish to to learn about her work. Her book is called Fresh Banana Leaves, but it's about a culture of sustainability. It's newly out and that's why I'm awarding her for her impact in business and society. She's one of the new under 40 people of great impact. Fantastic. And Chris, I think me and I will interview her after she gets the award on September 17th. You know, the need for global governance, as you say, a lot of corporations that you're dealing with are, they're making so they have internally set targets, some of them, which is, is great, but a lot of them can also just say, oh, we're still operating within the laws. The laws have not been mm-hmm. changed, so we'll maybe keep the status quo and we'll wait for some other brave ones to, <laughs> to, to change their behaviors. I'm not, I'm not necessarily the corporations that you deal with, but that's what a, a lot of corporations are doing, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I recently interviewed the climate scientist, Kevin Trenberth, who, as you know, is a lead author of a number of IPC reports. And even though he jointly won the Nobel Prize for his work with IPC, um, he says that that needs uh, a big evolution overhaul. And also, uh, we really don't have like a global governance body that has enough teeth in it. What is the way forward there? Well, I mean, I'm just, I'm nearly completing Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry for the Future right now. <laughs> and there is, in his conception of the future, there is this ministry that comes about that is meant to guide the way forward on the governance issues. Interesting. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I, I think this is the challenge. So what, while we've been collectively optimistic on the green shoots and the exciting things that are happening and, you know, where we've got opportunities, you know, the reality on, on, I think I'm sure what Kevin would said and what IPCC reports are saying, and we know those are tend to be pretty optimistic reports. They're not watered down. They're averaged out and consensus oriented. And lots of scientists that we've spoken to for some of our work are, you know, desperate and freaked out and are very terrified of what the modeling that they've seen. So we're, and in this fantastic book by, um, 
Robinson, it begins, it's not giving too much away, but it begins with a cataclysmic heat wave that kills 20 million people in India in the course of the past weeks. And this is within the realm of possibility, right? This is now in scientifically a potential event like this. And then what happens after that is, is what this great thought experiment that he's done in this book is to trying to see how does the rest of the world react? And I think all of the human, and you're a psychologist, Bruce, you know, but all the human reactions would be multiple, like right? some will put their head in their sand and dig deeper. Some will freak out and, you know, be, be desperate and dissolute. Some will be activists. And I, and I do think that there, as we progress along this dual track of action and the decade of action that the UN has dedicated this decade to be, as we get to the SDGs in 2030, is parallel to a decade of activism. Back to the original questions you had, Bruce, on from the social movements like Black Lives Matter, all the way to things like Extinction Rebellion and Fridays for the Future and Greta's movement. All of these will proliferate, I think, and expand in response to the existential threats that what science says is happening in real time. And we can see it, we understand it, we can feel it increasingly emotionally. So it's going to be a very volatile, rocky road. But I think these two things in parallel actually will reinforce each other. You know, the more activism, the more action is required, the more action that's required, the more sense that actually our activism does lead to a positive response from government and business. So there will be more of that. So again, the network effect is a potential. I'd like to, the question of a leader's character. I want to be bold and say that in every encounter I've had with you, Chris, I see the courage and the boldness and the urgency of a new century type of leader that I want to sum up in one phrase from Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein apparently said, strive not to be a success, but to be of value. Seems to me, everything I've ever seen you do, this whole concept that you have, that you can move the boldness through the wisdom of the crowd. It's not about you as a CEO, or it's not about a, a Unilever CEO. It's about striving to be of value, and that is a social value. So that's where ESG becomes a river big enough to move a stone, because it's not about individual power grabbing. So it's a beautiful quote. I don't know if I fully live that, but it's a very nice thing to say. I do think that the leaders that we see in, you know, the ones that I know and from maybe a different generation than a couple of decades ago, there is, we talk about collaboration a lot in sustainability. So it's almost like a cliche. I think it is, and still will be our saving grace. I think it's easy to talk about collaboration. It's very hard to execute. And then there's a generational shift that's transpired, especially with the millennials and, and Gen Z's who approach this notion of working together much differently. And I think with their sense of both the threat and anxiety of the future, as well as with their more purposefulness broadly, it's not always the case, but broadly together with their skills that they've developed to be more collaborative. I think this is the generation of leadership that's required. And there's less about the brands or the person and more about the collective success. And I think, you know, one of the great things we talked about later a little bit, one of the great things I think that they did almost a decade ago when they were into their sustainable living plan, which was an iconic sustainability strategy launched in 2010. One of the things that they realized very quickly is that the only way they can be successful with their goals is if the system changes and others are equally successful. And that maybe feels a little bit obvious now, but even a decade ago, that was pretty well, revolutionary. That was unheard of up until 12 years ago. 
Yes. Yeah. So, so we have, so I think we have this collect. So I think, you know, both the incentivized goals that companies are, are committing require others to do it. And that requires a new set of capabilities and leadership skills to implement them, which I think, you know, chief sustainability officers in particular have that capacity in spades. They've learned it through lots of trial and tribulations and difficulties and frustrations. And I hope that we will see more Fortune 500 companies choose next CEOs who have been deep into sustainability. And H&M's you know, new CEO, she was the chief sustainability officer. So maybe there's a shining light that going forward. Hey, Chris, what's that by you telling everyone what you're doing in England at Oxford and maybe in Brazil, just so they could get a sense of what you do in your day to day? Sure. So one of the things we're doing and that's exciting with, with the University of Oxford and the Said Business School is a corporate affairs initiative where we are working with a global council of corporate affairs and corporate communication professionals who, who are connected to the sustainability agenda, but they've got their own agenda and trying to understand how that function is addressing and navigating this crazy VUCA world, you know, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous world. So that's exciting and interesting and uh, gives a, another angle. And we've done lots of work with corporate affairs around reputation and issues management historically. So, so that's a nice template and working with the folks at Oxford, they're brilliant and they're fantastic. And, and, and we've got an annual corporate affairs survey, which is also public and a useful resource for people to look at. Yep. In, in Brazil, we're doing lots of ongoing work. There's a fantastic organization called ACATU, the ACATU Institute, which has been looking at conscious consumption there for 30 years. And a lot of our trying to meet our understanding of how consumers in Europe and North America are responding to brands and the sustainability agenda, but doing that also with partners in the global South to understand how that is different and unique and special and how do brands respond in that context. So lots of, lots of, and, and Brazilians, as you, as you guys know, are, are very philosophical. So there's wonderful learnings and understanding of how they see the value of human beings and how humans are these, they really embrace the complexity of human beings rather than us being, you know, a whole bunch of consumers. I love what you just said about the Brazilian culture. I remember bringing, when my book was translated into Brazilian Portuguese, a person to New York city and she looked around and she said, I think I should have been here before. It's <laughs> very philosophical, you know, it's totally. <laughs> and so they, they, they yeah. long conversations too. <laughs> so in closing, as you think about the future, which is what all your work at the GlobeScan is about, and you think about the world that we're leaving for the next generation, what have been some important life lessons for you? And what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Oh my goodness. Life lessons. Well, I mean, back, you'd referenced tree planting. I did tree plant as a tree planter for seven summers. And so I was able to see Northern Canada in its very remoteness and both its intim intimidation, <laughs> intimidating landscapes and especially black flies and mosquitoes, but also the deep inherent beauty of it and, and the majesty of, of that remoteness. So that was very powerful. I, I think more recently I've learned you know, that uh, back to this collaboration conversation and the need for dialogue. And this is what I think Bruce, you do, you do so well, I think, Mia, with your podcast of, of giving even more exposure and access to deep conversation and the work at AHC group 
Bruce, that you do, and I've been a part of uh, some of these, the workshops that you have of bringing people together from different backgrounds and really digging in and learning and talking. And while we need action, I think at the same time, the world is, the agenda is moving so quickly. We're learning more all the time. We really can't skip the dialogue part. And we need to create more space and more opportunity to think through what are we trying to do? What have we learned? How do we move smarter and more quickly? So it's not just about doing more action constantly. It's taking stock consistently because the agenda keeps evolving so at a more rapid pace than it has historically, which means we need to find more places for proper dialogue that are springboards for this action. But we shouldn't discount the fact that we've got to sometimes just stop and chat and listen and learn and then makes us better and stronger. Right. We can't just keep on moving. We have to make sure we're going in the right direction collectively, as you say. And you certainly help focus our thoughts on this. So thank you, Chris Coulter and Globescan for going all in on sustainability, your insights into leadership, helping create pathways for a more sustainable and equitable future. Thank you for adding your voice to business and society and One Planet podcast. Oh, thank you, Mia. Thank you, Bruce. Really enjoyed the conversation. Our pleasure. Thank you, Chris. This interview was conducted by Bruce Piasecki and Mia Funk. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Andrew Green. Digital Media Coordinator was Julia Rhodes. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening.